your book this morning. Our hearts are already sobered, or should be, as we see you as a God uh, of judgment, of justice and of mercy. Lord, we want to see you for who you are this morning. So help us for that. Uh, May this confronting story teach us the truths of who you are and the truths of our own heart as well. We're dependent on you to reveal that to us. So we ask for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Just a a precursor as well. um, For this Sunday and for next Sunday, we are just giving a bit of a parental guidance. Uh, recommendation. Don't hear that as an apology for what this text contains, but hear it as a warning in the sense of there may be young children or children in the room where parents are responsible, not just the text itself, but the applications as we speak of them and the themes and that sort of thing are not child-friendly. So just keeping that in mind for this morning and for next Sunday uh, when Mark preaches for us as well. That said... There are certain stories in the Bible that people outside the church certainly know of. Uh, when, especially this time of year, people would start to, to recognise. This is a time of year you can sort of get away with telling some Bible stories. You can talk about shepherds, you can talk about wise men, you can talk about these kinds of things. Even people in the broader community might even have heard of Noah and of Jonah and of David and of Goliath and all those sorts of of things. If you spend any time listening to different debates, even different forms of entertainment, even comedians, um, so-called, you'd soon realise they, rec- they, they tell some Bible stories. And sometimes they even turn to ones like this uh, to show that this is what the Bible's really about. As they sort of use it as a, as a weapon. They turn it on, turn God in on himself and say, this is why we shouldn't trust God or this is why we can mock at Christians because it, the Bible contains these kinds of stories. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah is, is used as an example of how unjust this whole system and faith is and how unjust uh, God can be by those outside of the faith. You know, complete destructions of city based on what people say, based on the sexual identity of some of its citizens, show that God's not really worth trusting in. That's what some say. And they would say that Christianity is founded on such things, on bigotry, on hatred, on violence, on judgment. How could a God of love do such things? Well, this story, though, this historical account of what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah does not present to us a God who is uncaring, unmerciful, unloving. Quite the opposite, actually. We, in this story, we, sh- we see a God who does judge, and we're meant to see him as that. But he does so with full and accurate information, He does it fairly. He does it after listening to appeals. And he does all that he does in the grounding of justice and mercy. He hears, he rescues, he judges. All with a complete and perfect combination of justice, 
and mercy. And that's what this story, this account is about, this God of justice and mercy who does all things well. Uh, we've been tracking through the story of Abraham. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're walking in on something that's just topical, that's not the case. We're tracking through Scripture. And when we track through Scripture, we hit things like this, which is a good thing because it makes us look at it, makes us examine it for our own heart's sake and for understanding of God. But we've been tracking through especially the promises to Abraham. And this is sort of seems like a break in the narrative. Seems like a break from the story of, of talking about Abraham and the promises to him and how God has come to him and blessed him and promised him a land, promised him offspring. Uh, we've just seen with, with the previous uh, portion how he's come to Abraham and Sarah and assured them that this promise of offspring would come through their son, through their son who would be named Isaac. They've learnt the hard way that their efforts fail but God has proved himself over and over as worthy of their trust, uh, that his will, his will was always better uh, to follow. And it was in his will that Abram and Sarah uh, found joy, laughter even. It was in his will, the way he intended things to be, that they'd found peace and true blessing. God had also promised, as part of his uh, blessing to Abraham and covenant with him, he had promised that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. So we've had a couple of little sidebars where this is mentioned. Back in chapter 13 and 14, God's promised this blessing to all the nations through Abraham. Then we have a bit of a sidebar where some of these cities are mentioned because Lot is taken captive and Abraham, uh, with God's hand, goes out and delivers Lot and many others, including kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's, there's examples that are flowing through. Will the nations surrounding Israel, will they partake in this blessing? Or will they, will they somehow disqualify themselves? from access to this blessing. Will they enter and see that God's hand is on Abraham and enter into a way of being blessed by him? Or will they reject God's way, God's blessing, God's will and disqualify themselves? That's a bit of what this story is about. There's two, I suppose in this context there's God's people, those he's put his hand upon, and in this case it's Abraham and his family, and there's all those surrounding them. It's all those surrounding them. So there's those who have faith and trust in God and those who don't believe in God and haven't received his blessing, just as it is today. But as we look through this account, there's, there's three, sort of three aspects of God that I want to see in his justice and mercy. And the first one is that there's this just and merciful God who hears. This just and merciful God who hears. Just a few verses before that, that Diane read for us as well. If you've got your Bibles open, it's just worth noting there's a God who hears. God has this interaction. He's just told Sarah off for laughing at him, for saying she's going to have a son. They set out from there. They go towards Sodom. And God has this dialogue within himself about whether he should tell Abraham and what's going to happen to the nations around. Part of his reasoning for that is, Again, Abram's been set aside. He's been called righteous and to set up a legacy of righteousness in his family as well. 
Verse 20. The Lord says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave or very grievous. Again, verse 21, according to the outcry that's come up to me. God has heard something and he's come down to check it out, to see if it's as it is. He's heard this cry. One of the ways we, we build trust in relationship is, is by listening. It's by listening to others. And, and healthy relationships are built on clear and honest communication. Uh, we need to know when someone hears us in order to, to trust them. It's one of the first things I want us to note and put everything in context in this story is that God hears. God hears. He hears the outcry from these cities. It's repeated again by the angels in verse 13 in chapter 19. And he hears Abraham's appeals. As Abraham enters into this sort of, for lack of a better term, negotiation backwards and forwards, he hears Abram out and he comes to investigate. God's already shown this in Genesis. If you remember back, right back to Cain and Abel. God comes to confront Cain after the death of his brother and he says, I, I can hear the cry of the innocent. You can hear the cry of the innocent blood coming to me from the ground. And he comes to investigate and to bring justice and judgment in that scenario. In chapter 6, we see with Noah and the flood, again, we see God is moved directly by injustice and evil, the hearts of people. And he comes to intervene. The Tower of Babel, again in chapter 11, God comes down to see what the people are doing. They've said they're going to reach heaven. He comes down to check out what they're doing and to judge, to scatter them, to, to foil their evil plans. Here in Sodom and Gomorrah, a great outcry has come up to God from these places. The sin is grave, it says here, it's grievous. Innocents were clearly suffering. And we know from, from this passage and from others in Old Testament and New Testament, there were things happening in Sodom and Gomorrah that was unjust, it was heinous, it was evil. Not just perverted sexual practices, violent intentions, rape, unnatural desires, indulgences, as Jude puts it. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel also talk of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of evil and wickedness in the sense of how they treated strangers, how they were not hospitable, how they didn't care for the vulnerable and the poor. These were, these were places clearly with perverted values. Rampant evil. Selfish desires. Was, they expressed everything that was contrary to God's good design. They did whatever was right in their own eyes. As the phrase in Judges uh, comes to mind. There's a reason that comes to mind for us as we read Sodom and Gomorrah because this story repeats itself with God's people in Judges as well. This is not just something that happens out there in the world of unbelieving people that don't have access to the truth of God. This is something that happens in the human heart where all these things can take over when they're given that place, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes and they resent anyone 
who comes along and tries to redirect them or tries to point out they're in error. Chapter 11, we see the spirit of Babel. Here we see this sort of same spirit coming through, this pride, this arrogance against God and his ways. And whenever people do whatever they wish, whenever people only act on whatever they desire, on whatever they most love, they redefine what's right, what's good. Whenever that happens, that society is destined for destruction. We see from this the God who hears that he's not idle. He's not lazy when it comes to evil and wickedness. Anything we'd view as a delay on, in our time frame of thinking, in our way of thinking, uh, we're told in other parts of scripture, is just evidence of God's patience and mercy. But here also we see we have clear uh, precedent to call out, to call out and call upon God for justice and mercy, for the oppressed, for the abused. We've got a precedent to call out because he's the God who hears. We also have a precedent here to model the patience of God for the wicked because Abraham gives us that as well. We're meant to plead for the mercy of those who are around us who are in sin and facing judgment. And to plead with God that his justice and mercy would prevail. It will, but we are meant to enter into a dialogue with God where we plead for that, where we intercede for our society. We see Abraham's boldness as he enters. He comes and, and speaks to God and he speaks to God and approaches him based on his understanding of God's justice and mercy. That's always the best approach to make to God. When you truly know who he is and his character, you can approach him with great boldness. And he comes and speaks to God several times and they have this back and forth, negotiating for the, all of these, these cities, basically. One city becomes the focus, that's where Lot is. For the sake of 50 righteous, God says he won't wipe out the city. That God would spare all those places, spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. He would do that. That's how just and merciful he is. That he counts righteousness, even the smallest amount, when it's compared to a great evil. What becomes clear as this back and forth goes on from 50 to 45, to 30, to 20, to 10. It soon becomes really clear there's not even 10 righteous in Sodom. Not even 10. We read, as we read through the story, we see three lives are spared. So perhaps there was three righteous. The story next week might show us a little bit more and maybe say there's one righteous. We don't know. God sees hearts. But three are spared out of all those cities. The rest are judged comprehensively, entirely. But God's rescuing mercy comes in the midst 
of judgment. That's, that's far more than we can fathom. Also, what's hard to fathom is how ever few righteous can affect a society so ingrained with evil. It's always better and worse than we imagine in some ways, isn't it? It's, it's worse because there's none righteous, we're told. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good. That's what scripture tells us. But it's also better. Because just as we're completely wiped out and none of us can stand before God, we realise God's rescue of us isn't dependent on our own efforts to save ourselves. If our salvation and rescue was dependent on our righteousness, we'd be in trouble, in big trouble. But God hears this great cry. He sees the grave sin. And he listens to the pleads for mercy and justice. And this wonderful phrase, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That is something to grab hold of in your life. It's something I've grabbed hold of many times in my life. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, do what is good, do what is right? Because many times in my life I don't like what's going on in someone else's life or in my life. But if I can reassure myself of God's goodness and sovereignty and start from the ground up there, I have the foundation to approach God on with boldness because I know he's just I know he's merciful, I know he's good, I know he's in control. So this is something that I think should occupy our time. Appealing to God for his justice and his mercy. How do we intercede? How much time do we spend interceding for those in need? How much time do we spend interceding for our society, for our family? We have people in our congregation who have this great gift of intercession, who devote their time to it. And I'm so appreciative of that. But this is a calling that every believer has, to intercede to God based on his justice and mercy for our lives, for our family, for our society, for our nation, for our world. Calling on the God who hears is something we should do And we do that because we have a perfect judge who hears us. He hears. And even when you don't have the words, it's great. He still hears. He still hears. So if we have the just and merciful God who hears, we see we have a just and merciful God who rescues. Uh, Rachel and I uh, got to know each other walking up and down Mount Lofty. Um, there was a group that were doing it. I got somehow pulled into that group, met, well, was reacquainted with Rachel and got to know her mainly walking down because I couldn't talk going up. <laughs> but on one of these walks, sort of summertime, I had an opportunity to rescue her. Just as she was about to make a step forward, there's a brown snake on the path. She didn't see it. I had this wonderful opportunity to actually lift her up off the ground and put her on the other side of the path. She had no aware of the danger. Um, she's still sceptical there was danger. 
I'd like her to be at least show some gratitude, but either way, I know the truth. Sometimes our greatest rescue comes when we least realise we need it. Sometimes our greatest rescue comes when we least realise we need it. Lot, in some ways, seems oblivious, but he's oblivious to the impending destruction. He's certainly conscious of what's going on in his society and what surrounds him. We see that from from 2 Peter. talks about Lot and what he felt. We'll see in a minute. But he's oblivious to what's coming. And he's a walking contradiction in some ways as we look at him in two. Find him at the gate of Sodom. At the gate of any city was a prominent place. It's where the leaders of the city usually met to judge on matters, to, to give direction, to, to make decisions for the community. Lot was a man who met at the gate of the city. He was actually a person of influence, a person with a position of judgment. His position as well allowed him to, to see what was happening in the city, but to notice what went on and, and take notice of those who needed help. This is how he used his position, it seems, as well. He took his position with some degree of responsibility to care for those who might be more vulnerable to the baser elements of the city. He sees these heavenly visitors arrive and immediately perceives they're in danger if they stay in the town square as they intend. He has this bit of back and forth with them, but he compels them to come home with him. He gives them the hospitality, the same hospitality that Abraham showed to them back early in chapter 18 as well. He welcomes them into his home, even endangering himself in doing so, and provides them food. And he thinks he's protecting them. 2 Peter chapter 2, as I've said, verse 7 to 9, give us a bit more of an insight to Lot and who he was He's, and why he maybe acted the way he did towards these two angels. This Peter describes him as a righteous man who, who was tormented over what happened in that place. The immorality and the sensuality of the city that was something that deeply distressed and tormented him. What happens next, though, is, is something that confronts us. Um, and, and it's the reason this account has become so widely known, just synonymous with the town, the city itself. Synonymous with the, the acts these men wanted to perform on them, to perform on these angels and to engage in them with. What these men were seeking to do was wrong. It was violent, it was evil, it was vile. It was despicable. And it was just one of the many practices in that city that was all those things, violent, vile, evil. Just one. Clearly this practice specifically, though, was common. It was expected. It was expected to happen. Lot knew it was going to happen in some form or another. He knew what they were intending. It was expected to be affirmed. Why would you put any barriers in the way of this happening? It's expected to be allowed, not hindered, not judged. 
And it's not just the violence of it, not just the implications they intended to rape these men, but the action itself of men having sexual relations with other men, which is indicated here and in other parts of Scripture to be against God's design, to be unnatural, to be sinful. And sexual immorality comes in all forms, all forms. And all the forms of sexual immorality that we partake in are equally against God's law and design. The basis for that, of course, is, as we started with in Genesis a while back now, that God made one man and one woman to become a one flesh union. Sex is for marriage in that context. Sex in any other context is not acceptable to God. It's not part of his plan. It is a sin against his plan. It separates us from God and from his righteousness. Sodom and the surrounding cities were known for particular acts of sexual immorality, but it had clearly given itself over to all forms of sensuality and sexual immorality. And this is part of the outcry that comes up to God. God did not come to destroy Sodom and these cities based on homosexuality alone. But clearly, those actions are nowhere affirmed in Scripture. In some ways, I want to spend as much time on this as the text does, which is a sentence. But in other ways, I know this is a sensitive topic and we're not returning to this anytime soon. It's a sensitive topic, not just because our society has a different narrative of sexuality and, and the way we should even approach sex. It's not sensitive in any way because the Bible's out of date and it's missed a step and we're on the wrong side of history. That, I don't believe that at all. It's sensitive because it has to do with issues of the human heart. It has to do with sin in our hearts, in all of our hearts. It's sensitive because a lot like Lot, we like to compare sins. Because when he was confronted with this, he offered something equally heinous and horrible in return. It's sensitive because we're a bit like that. We tend to compare. My sin's not as bad as that sin. We always have a better view of our own inclinations, our own desires that aren't in step with what they should be according to God's plan. We always have a better view of our own temptations than we do of others who struggle with, with such things. There's many, there's many, many people who struggle with sexual inclinations and, and desires that they choose not to act on. They choose not to act on. They look at what they're attracted to or who they're attracted to and if it's not in line with what God has says will lead to their flourishing in his plan and honouring him, they don't act on it. They don't act on their desire. That's a difficult path that many, many people walk. And I don't doubt there's some people that may, if you don't know someone, maybe there's someone even here. And the message this morning is that 
God hasn't come to destroy those with weaknesses, with inclinations, with temptations. God has come to rescue those who have cried out to him for mercy. Many, many believers, many believers, choose a path of loving God rather than worshipping themselves or worshipping love itself. And I want to hold out to you some, some people that might encourage you to get more equipped in understanding that. Men like Sam Albury, a celibate Anglican priest in the UK who writes wonderfully on these things. Honest about his internal attractions to men. Honest about his, how he's worked it out with God and struggled. Honest about his commitment to celibacy. Ed Shaw, who I've met and heard in person, same position. Rosaria Butterfield, a lecturer, literature lecturer in a same-sex marriage, saved, now married to a man with children, writing wonderfully on these things, on who God is and what he's done in her heart and in her love. Her greatest testimony is that how she came to faith was through the hospitality of the church. Jackie Hill Perry is another one. These are people that have examined their hearts. They've seen what they're attracted to. They've seen their loves are out of order, as theologians put it. And they've decided, no, God, God is going to be my one aim, to live to please him. Not to be cured, but to be holy. And what do we point people to when we talk about these kinds of things? We have to be careful with that. We don't point people to a cure. We don't point people to wholeness in some form that's in our own making. And we point people to a person. We point people to Jesus, who is able to sympathise with people's weaknesses, love them, care for them, and even die for them in their sin. I want us to take time on that. If there's more you want to talk to about that, please speak to myself or one of the leaders later. But wickedness and... Wickedness, not just wickedness itself, but the affirmation of wickedness that goes on. And this affirmation of sinful acts, this is what leads to the destruction of cultures and society. It's what will lead to the destruction of our own hearts if we're not careful. And this story takes great pains to point out this was not isolated. This had permeated all of the society. Verse 4, great pains, both before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people, to the last man surrounded the house. As we said before, he, he offers his, his daughters. And our disgust should rise within us. That would be an appropriate response to what Lot does here. No wonder God came down. Because even the most righteous person in the place 
if, if they're going to consider such heinous and horrible things, the outcry is great. The sin is grievous. The angels, whom Lot thinks is protecting, rescue him from the mob. They strike the mob blind. And they exhaust themselves seeking for the door. Their blindness doesn't limit their lust. They're so blind in it that they wear themselves out, groping to find a way in. It's a danger there for us to examine our own hearts and when our desires and our loves are quickly getting out of order as well, when we become so obsessed with something, so addicted to something, so lustful for something, that we become convinced that we're entitled to the fulfilment of whatever we desire, even at great, great cost to others. The angels warn Lot, judgment is coming. And he hears this impending of this impending judgment, and he has an initial urgency. He goes to his sons and laws, up, we have to get out of here. Keep in mind as well when it says back in verse 4, all the men of the city to the last one. When Lot goes to his sons and laws and tells them to come on out with him. They don't take him seriously. They think he's joking. His urgency is then diminished so much that he lingers. Verse 16 tells us he lingers while judgment is coming. And the angels take him forcibly. He and his wife and his two daughters and they literally drag him out and put him outside the city. And they do that not based on his ability to get on his own two feet and walk out of there. They do that on the basis of God's mercy, it says. The Lord being merciful to him. Here's a man conflicted. Not fully obedient. Yet God is merciful. His negotiation with the angel about going to the smaller city just increases our wonder at his bravado. His bravado is a bit and boldness is a bit different to Abraham's. Abraham has appealed to God on the basis of his nature, of his justice and his mercy. Lot here, he's, he knows God is gracious and he's shown favour. Now he's taking advantage. Go to the hills. Get out of the valley. But instead he seeks another compromise. And God is gracious. He assumes on God's grace, and sometimes it's good to assume on God's grace. But to manipulate God is a dangerous thing. He goes to the little city. Often what we're offered for free is not enough. don't know if you've ever observed that in your own heart. It's easy to see in other people's hearts sometimes. What about more? I know for myself, I don't know if I can speak for Darren. We've noticed that on our Friday mornings. We have people here in need. And we're so grateful to have an opportunity to help them. 
but there's some that assume on the generosity. And don't just take. They actually take more than they need and they seek to take a bit more. And for us, we smile sometimes and grit our teeth at other times. But our hearts are the same. We're always looking for more. It's not enough that we've been set free and been given life. We want more. God does give more because he's generous. His mercy is abundant. But just as much as God is gracious and his mercy is abundant, his judgment is certain and it's sure and complete. And there's a point here to stop. Do you know what you're in need of rescue from? Do you even know that you're in need of rescue? Do you know that you're facing judgment? Because all those who don't believe in Christ, all those who don't believe in Jesus, who are those who haven't trusted God at his word, haven't approached him on the basis of his character and his nature and with the awareness of how far short we fall of his glory, we all face judgment. Have you been confronted, not just with the sin that surrounds you, but with the sin that lives in you and your inability to rescue yourself from it. Have you seen that without God's mercy, destruction lies ahead? That you are in desperate need of a God who rescues? If you are in Christ, praise him for that. Praise him that you are rescued, but if you are not this morning, I'd urge you to consider that. Do you know you need rescue? We have a just and merciful God who hears. We have a just and merciful God who rescues. We have a just and merciful God who judges. Closing portion there from verse 23 to 29, we just see this devastation that comes. God rains down sulfur and fire on these places, overthrowing the cities and the valley. Don't know if you've seen scenes after a bushfire, just the absolute devastation, the complete blackness. Everything's wiped out. There's no, no life, especially when the homes are even burnt down. There's an emptiness. This is much worse because after a bushfire, you can rebuild a home. The rain comes again and the grass grows, the trees grow. There's life again. But when God brings judgment in such a way, there's no second chances. It's total. It's complete. God's judgment on the wicked and unrepentant, those who have heard a warning and not turned back. It's exact. God's judgment is exact. He knows the precise offence and the equal measure of consequence. He hears the outcry. He comes to investigate. His judgment is exact. It's complete. It's complete. There's nothing left. There's no doubt left. There's no second chance that's set in motion. 
It's total. There's nothing left to rise up again. No way that the birth, more, more evil can be birthed, more darkness can be birthed. God has dealt with it. And the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to confront us with this absolute rule and reign of God. This lesson, this account, despite what society might teach, maybe even what we've thought at times, this passage and account is not a lesson in how God hates homosexuals. God's judgment is not based on hatred of people. His judgment is based in his inability to ignore wickedness, injustice, death of the innocent. And how are we to respond to this? How are we to respond? If I've already made a call to those of you that may not know you're facing judgment, how are the rest of us to respond to this? Maybe a searching question for us who have put our faith in Jesus but know our imperfections. So, Have I compromised in some way? On some things that I need to address with God. Confronted with the wickedness of the city that tormented and distressed him in the impending judgment that was coming, Lot offered wickedness as an alternate to wickedness. He quickly loses his zeal when faced with mocking. He lingers when he should have fled. Seeks compromise when he's already received mercy. And soon, as we'll see next week, he's directly implicated in the sexual immorality of that city that has permeated his family. He was righteous but complacent, distressed but lingering, tormented, tormented but complicit. And in our society, it would be easy for us to identify with all the righteous characteristics of Lot, which is a good thing to do and something to model. It's why these people are presented to us in some ways. We're distressed at what we see in here. The sexual immorality, the violence that surrounds us, torments us. And we seek to protect uh, the vulnerable and warn those who are facing judgment. But how quickly our own hearts reveal us as hypocrites. We compare our sin to others and think we're better than them. Simply because what is good in our eyes, even if it's bad, is still not as bad as what they do. We say we despise immorality and violence and yet we fill our minds with it as entertainment. Justifying it as being, it's not real. We protect some of the vulnerable, at times neglecting the most vulnerable under our own roofs. For parents, what, what can we do to protect our children in this society? It's a hard thing to navigate. Seeking to raise children that are set apart to trust God, but knowing their innocence at some point is going to be taken. We can live without compromise. Hard but worthy goal. Nearly impossible though. Have a zeal for God's judgment. Again, a good thing but hard to live out. Especially because we're not good at letting God judge us first. 
our biggest need in all these things is to submit to the justice and mercy of God. Recognising that in Christ, in his own son Jesus, justice and mercy met perfectly. That on the cross, as the eternal son of God, died all of God's wrath, all of his anger at sin, all of the judgment for sin came down on his son. Fully satisfying God's righteous requirement for all of our sin. That doesn't sound fair, but it's just. And God has declared it to be so. And it sure is merciful on us. There are two kinds of people in this world, as C.S. Lewis put it. Those to whom God will say, let me start again. There's two kinds of people. Those who come to God and say, your will be done. And those to whom God will say, your will be done. We have choices to make. And it's only in the will of God that we find mercy and justice, love and faithfulness, salvation rescue we all have loves that get out of order we all have wrong desires that we need to address we all have ambitions plans, dreams, hopes all of them at some point get out of order and when we pursue a full expression of all we want what we want to happen, our will we will not be free. We will not be free. It's only in God's will that we are free. Let's pray. Father, we see you as a just and merciful God. God who hears The God who hears the cry of the innocent, who, who sees the injustice, who sees evil. A God who rescues in mercy from judgment. And we see the God who judges. And Lord, in your Son, we see this full expression of justice and mercy in your great love to us and what you've made possible. That we who are unrighteous, unworthy, unholy, with loves that are out of order, can come to you and put ourselves under your hand, under your righteous hand. So we thank you for what you've provided. And Lord, I ask for any here today who are maybe just hearing that they might be facing judgment. May this be something that sticks in their mind, in their heart. That they need you. And we all do. You are the only answer to what we need. Help us to see that. In the precious name of your Son.
Well, 